So this quote is from The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. <laughs> this is probably way off the pronunciation. Um, the quote is, People where you live, the little prince said, grow 5,000 roses in one garden, yet they don't find what they're looking for. They don't find it, I answered. And yet, what they're looking for could be found in a single rose or a little water. Of course, I answered. And the little prince added, but eyes are blind. You have to look with the heart. This is such a good quote um, or excerpt. How do we look with the heart? To look with the heart, we have to look with simplicity and innocence, which means we have to forego expectations. There's the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. So why does familiarity breed contempt? Because what we're familiar with, at least in this way of talking about familiarity, is our own expectations, our beliefs, our judgments. And a lot of those have to do with the belief that I just know how this is going to go. I know how the world is. I know how people are. I know what this person's going to say next. I know what I'm going to say next. I know what I'm going to do. I know who I am. So these beliefs, these expectations that we have, these are familiarity, familiarity of the mind or of thought. So why does familiarity breed contempt? Well, there's something so artificial about it. There's something so stereotyped about it. Judgment and expectations, in one way of talking about them, they feel so personal. They feel like mine, my judgments, my world, my view, my problems, my challenges, whatever. Um, But even that is, even that sense of being very personal is um, not right. There's something off about it. Because it's not personal. It's impersonal. These stereotyped ways of seeing, judging, believing are not your doing. They're more like a hypnotic spell. We're transfixed with thoughts, including beliefs that are buried about how the world is, how we are, how people are, and all the rest. And the beliefs that say I have to be in control I am in control. I'm making choices. I have to judge. I have to find, I have to discern the right from the wrong. 
all of this. Um, is something that we, I think, largely adopt unconsciously through empathic patterning, through communication with other humans, and so forth. So it's like a collective hypnosis, a collective um, dream. And it feels uncomfortable because it feels false. So at some point, because we don't perceive a way out of this, we start to become angry or frustrated or disdainful or contemptuous toward it. Even though we don't fully recognize what's happening so that contempt gets projected outward onto people onto the world onto situations organizations all of it so all of this is um, seeing with the mind or seeing through the mind or seeing through judgment seeing through thought not seeing with the heart. But we want to see with the heart. We want to live out of the heart. Part of us knows it's possible. We've certainly all had moments of it. We've had tastes of it. So how to live out of the heart right now, how to see with the heart. Well, when it comes to the senses, simply what is heard or simply the sound or simply what is seen or simply the forms and colors or simply what is felt, or the sensations, simply what is tasted, the flavors, and so forth. In that space, in that knowing, that, that very direct knowing, we are seeing with the heart. It is thoroughly innocent, unguarded, simple. But it takes some discernment to actually do that or recognize that. Not that we all aren't um, in direct contact at all time with the senses, because we are, but probably only for very short uh, instances before the sense becomes the reflection of the sense the mental version of the sense. And this, I recently did a interview with a guy named Tony. I think I released it two days ago or maybe yesterday, maybe two days ago. Um, and we talked about this and it, you know, for someone who had been 
had a lot of clarity for many, many years. It was only very recently that he recognized this. And when he did, it changed everything. Um, so when that unbinding from the, the dualistic, the most fundamental dualistic reflection of mind, which is the, the dualistic reflection of the senses that makes reality look solid, <laughs> divided, separate, or divided into separate objects and divided into a subject and an object. When we, however it happens, um, stop doing that or stop referencing those thoughts, even though they're non-conceptual. Uh, in one way of talking about it, there's just no going back. It's such a profound change. Um, it's such a direct way of living that we are surprised often that we hadn't lived directly for our entire life. <laughs> maybe, maybe as a very, very young child before we were forming memories, but to live directly in that way is, um, so disarming. It is to see, feel, taste, hear with the heart. Um, it's charming. <laughs> it's so simple. It's so innocent. And it has implications that go far beyond the immediate senses. Although there's nowhere to go beyond the immediate senses. But what I mean by the implications is it changes your view of everything. It changes your view of people, it changes your view of yourself in the conventional sense all of a sudden you realize how innocent everything and everybody really is. Even if through delusion, um, great harm can be done and it can, but you still see that the innocence is really there because the innocence, um, which again is available to all of us when we see, feel, hear through the heart, the innocence is always the primary experience or the primary appearance. And then everything else is built on top of it, but it gets built very quickly. And so the second part of the answer to the question, well, how do we see with the heart right now? The first part is, uh, non-dual realization, <laughs> uh, which comes later on for, for most of us. It's, um, you may have tastes of it with a, with an initial awakening. Many people do, but it, it's not stable at all. And often you don't have much experience of it for sometimes even years after. But in deeper stage realization, it clarifies. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part, though, is, okay, well, what do we do? And that's not the case <laughs> when there's thoughts all the time and or it seems like there's thoughts all the time and there's a lot of struggle still and a lot of Maybe we're moving through a lot of shadow material, a lot of frustration and confusion and intense emotions and all of it. Um, so in, in that case, which is the vast majority of people uh, who are going through this unbinding process fall in that category. 
Um, it really comes down to a sort of trust, a sort of faith. Faith in the process, trust in the process. Trust that even though you're not in obvious direct experience of undivided reality, meaning um, there still appears to be a self apart from objects, a self apart from the world. Um, there seems to be solidity and form and time and space feel rather binding, rather real, that even though all of that is going on, there's a trust that something more fundamental than any of that, any of those perceptions, any of that really sense of, of a world and you in it, that there's something more fundamental than that driving all of this, driving this unbinding process. In one way of speaking, it's the ultimate act of faith. I mean, it, and it kind of is because uh, from the perspective of the, the identified mind, there's no, there's nothing here for you. There's nothing you can grasp onto, really. I can give things that feel like something the mind is grasping onto, like practices and talks about stages of awakening and all that, but um, those are never actually directed at the mind, at the thought system. So, so the mind really can't directly engage what we're talking about here. So to the degree we're identified with that, this is going to be confusing to the identity, if not directly threatening to the identity. So there is a measure of faith that, that comes in with this. It may not be faith in the usual way we think about it or the religious you know, way we think about faith, but certainly some, some faith in the fact that this is mm, um, meaningful, this engagement this questioning, this just sitting, not doing anything, this stopping without grasping on to the next thought, that that is actually meaningful, purposeful, that it leads somewhere. It leads to some thing, some realization, some truth, some further unbinding. So how do you have faith like that? How do you uh, cultivate that. Well, you probably have some degree of it already or you wouldn't be here. Because, you know, if there's no crack at all, there's no crack for the light to shine through, so to speak, in the identified mind, then none of this even makes sense. You know, I get these comments on my YouTube channel pretty frequently, probably daily. People who watch a video who hadn't seen anything about this topic before or whatever, and they see a video and they just say, this makes no sense. This is like nonsense words, you know? Um, so if there's nothing in you that, that is oriented to, to unbinding from identity, then the way the world looks to the identity would make it such that this kind of speaking is nonsense. So everyone here has some interest, inclination, orientation at some level already. So then how can we deepen that? How do we cultivate that? Well, it, through action, actually. 
Um, in Buddhism, there's a description of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's not something I talk about necessarily because I think it can get confusing real fast when we talk about doing and non-doing and all that. But, you know, there's right behavior, uh, I'm sorry, right action, right mindfulness, and so forth, right concentration. Um, again, I don't talk about these as ideals to hold yourself to or anything because I don't find, I think that can be, that can, it can lead to some, some problems in my view, my experience. Certainly in traditional Buddhism, they wouldn't agree with that. But uh, there's truth to it for sure, and that is the mere act of sitting to meditate, sitting to close your eyes and do nothing, committing to not making anything, not fabricating anything. The, the mere act itself is powerful. It deepens that trust. It deepens the faith in and of itself. There's a lovely term Dogen used called practice enlightenment. They're the same thing. Practice and enlightenment are the same, one and the same. This gets at that nicely. <clears throat> we don't have to make a um, metaphysical map or uh, whatever around all of these different kinds of behaviors and practices and so forth. We just sit. Just sit. One time. One moment. One round. That's it. And feel what comes along with that, which can be anything, but sometimes it's uncomfortable. So even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's painful or disorienting, know that if nothing else, that's deepening the trust. It's deepening your connection to that which is beyond the identified mind beyond any identity structure. And that won't be discernible in that moment, most of the time. Maybe in retrospect, after years of practice or something, it becomes a little more obvious. But the act of sitting, the act of not distracting, not doing the usual, not going along with the habits, beliefs, and behaviors that constantly reinforce identity, including collective identity. The act of withdrawing from that for a moment, for a round, for a day, for a, a retreat is valuable. It deepens our, deepens our faith in this process. Much of that is unconscious or below the conscious level. Some of it will be conscious. We'll, we'll notice that, oh, I, I can sit a little longer. I can sit a little more calmly. I can sit through painful experiences. I can sit through intense emotions. And then we may see after retreat, oh, wow, when those intense emotions come in casual situations or around people or whatever, I'm less reactive. So part of us does recognize that this does something. Um, but so much of this really is beneath the conscious level. Perhaps we could say it's energetic, but it has an effect. Every round has an effect. Every retreat has an effect. Every moment of letting go of the thought train has an effect, including right now. 
And in my experience, it just orients you more truly to the unborn, the unbound, the undying. Um, that way of moving with spirituality, that way of moving with this process or your process of just sitting, not making anything, not trying to control anything, not grabbing thoughts, not resisting emotions or feelings or sounds or sensations. That's powerful work and it works very well for many people. For some people, there's maybe just a little too much dynamism to the mind, a little too much, maybe addiction to thought. I don't know. Um, and then uh, a more active type of practice, more active type of investigation into your true nature can be helpful. And that can also cultivate and deepen this trust or faith in this process. I've seen that many times, actually. I've seen it where people will start to use inquiry. And at first, it's just doesn't feel like anything. It feels solid. It feels dry. It feels unalive, confusing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. My mind just goes on and on and on. And then some little crack opens up. Something changes a little bit. And all of a sudden, it starts to feel more interesting, the inquiry process, more juicy. And that is certainly a, a deeper orientation that's occurring to the unbound and the unbinding. And if you keep at it often, it starts to sort of come alive. The process itself um, I don't know, get sea legs, so to speak, feels less like you're doing inquiry and more like inquiry is self-propagating. This becomes a kind of one pointed experience, a singular experience, a sort of singularity of experience. That's very compelling. It's compelling because it has a way of stopping thoughts in their tracks. It has a way without, without struggling with thoughts, it has a way of cutting off the mind road. It has a way of releasing your binding from thought again and again and again, which again, at first may feel like an act may feel like something you have to keep telling yourself to do and reorienting to that. And then at some point it starts to feel rather automatic rather fascinating how just orienting to this one singularity, this one point of experience naturally quiets the mind, naturally propagates the unbinding from thought. And just feels right in a way that 
self-hypnosis through thought doesn't. So the self-hypnosis through thought has one thing going for it, familiarity. It's familiar. Not comfortable, but familiar. Not fruitful, but familiar. Causes endless suffering, but it's familiar. But when you break that spell, even for a moment, and realize, oh my gosh, there's something else to orient to that isn't that self-hypnosis of thought. And it's right here. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to figure anything out here. I don't have to manage time. I don't have to manage myself <laughs> moving from the past into the present and into the future. I don't have to remember myself. I don't have to maintain ego boundaries. I don't have to worry. I don't have to judge. I don't have to grapple. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to figure out how to stop struggling. You don't have to do any of that. Because this, it's here right now. This sort of singularity just doesn't require any of that. It requires nothing. It requires nothing of you. So what is it in your experience right now that requires nothing of you? It's not judging. It's not trying to figure anything out. You don't have to deserve it. It's not waiting, you, waiting for you to do the right thing or say the right thing or find the right practice. It's not waiting for anything. It's just right there. And you are already in contact with it. So with this orientation, this orientation to a one-pointed experience, one-pointed contact, with this orientation, this faith in this process deepens significantly. And... Um, obviously for you the the faith in it is the one-pointed experience actually at, at this point it starts to feel rather unified in that way and this faith and this unified one-pointed experience uh, also is innocent and simple in what it's not. All the things I listed. It's not a problem to solve. It's not a collection of thoughts. It's not something you can forget or need to remember. It's not somewhere else. It's not fabricated. It doesn't have to be maintained. It's just there. So if you sense what I'm talking about, stay with that. Primarily throughout this entire retreat, throughout your entire life. Why deviate? If you recognize the preciousness of this through the direct experience of the preciousness of this, why deviate? Why go back to that dead world of thoughts? So then, again, if this 
resonates right now in your experience, stay with it. Listen to the talks, the guided meditations, all of it. But let most of everything be a bit more in the background and let this be in the foreground. And you'll notice it doesn't filter anything out either. It doesn't preclude attention from moving here and there. Don't overlook it because the mind tells you it's uninteresting or it's boring or worse. Oh, it can't be it. That can't be it. That simple thought deters so many people. The thought that says, no, this, this can't, it's too simple. It can't be it. It deters people so often. Don't believe the thought. Go back to the singularity, to the simplicity. And I'm inclined to say be patient here, but it's almost as if the patience is built into it. It has that quality of this is it. This is where I've been looking to orient. It's the yes that it's not a thought-based yes. It's the knowing that doesn't require an object of thought to know it. So, so this is where the, that lens of faith or trust I was talking about in some kind of process that's beyond thought or pointing beyond thought, beyond concepts, beyond you as you know yourself. That's where that lens aligns with the lens of immediate experience or simple direct experience. They become one and the same. There are a couple different ways to interpret the, the ox herding pictures, but the sixth ox herding picture is really beautiful because it's, you know, the little ox herding man jumps up on the bull and he's riding the bull and it says aloft the bull. Uh, my flute intones through the night. Whoever hears this will follow me. Gain and loss are assimilated. Um, he just rides the, that ox and he plays his flute but he's turned backwards on the ox in the original wood blocks. He doesn't even know where that ox is going, but you're gonna keep playing his flute. This is quite symbolic of this one-pointed singular um, experience. You don't know where you're going. You never did actually, but um, now you knowingly don't know where you're going and you rejoice in it. And you can carry this through the day, carry it into eating, carry it into walking, carry it as you hear the dong of the, the bell, carry it as you notice your breath, carry it through meditation rounds, carry it as you go off to sleep, 
carry it right as you wake up because you'll notice it immediately because it's always there, always here. It's here before here and there here. Here before the mind makes anything. It's here before the mind makes a world or time or space or thoughts, problems, solutions. So just stay with it wherever it guides you. That really is the ultimate act of faith in a sense. For me, uh, many years ago, that's exactly what I realized finally. I could finally find something that I could have faith in, that I could have full trust in. Because I knew for years and years I didn't actually trust the mind. I didn't trust the thoughts. But I also thought, perceived that the thoughts were what was, well, me in, in one sense. <laughs> I never really believed it. I don't think anyone really believes the thoughts are who I am. But the the transfixed orientation we have with thought constantly suggests that they are what you are, that what you believe about yourself is true about you. What you believe about the world is true about the world. So, um, yeah, for so long, I, I just felt I, w I was so stuck in this world of thought. Um, it was uncomfortable, but I also felt like it was somehow getting me through life. It was helping me navigate. I didn't realize it wasn't at all. Um, so there's a lot of struggle there and frustration and confusion because I didn't fully trust thoughts. Of course, I didn't fully trust my own mind. I didn't fully trust what I took myself to be. Didn't trust life. Didn't trust the world. Uh, and when I finally found something I could fully trust, how surprising it is that it was, it was nothing to do with thoughts. Um, also surprising is that it was had always been there. I had literally just been overlooking it again and again and again. Because in one one way of talking about this, I was looking from it. But that doesn't even say the whole thing because it's not just that I'm looking from it. It's like I it is the looking. It's all of it. It's like a totality, but it's also a singularity. Because totality will get interpreted by the mind as, a, as the myriad things, like a bunch of stuff, a bunch of things, a bunch of objects and the space in which they exist. But, um, but the, the singularity is, is more accurate because it's not, it has nothing to do with size. It's not in space. Space and time are created by the mind to believe all the thoughts. This is before all of that. So the singularity is nice because it shows you that it's accessible, simple, already here, already the case. One-pointed. So follow anywhere that one-pointed experience takes you, if it's, if it's uh, alive for you. And don't compare it to anything I've ever said. Don't. Ask yourself, oh, is, maybe this isn't quite what Angelo's talking about or Adyashanti's talking about or Dogen's talking about, whatever. Don't compare it to anything because if, if that's happening, that's always a thought. Rather, I should say, if the thought comes that's a comparison thought, don't believe it. Go right back to that one-pointed experience.
Let the doubts come and go. Let the beliefs come and go. Let the conclusions come and go. Let the doctrine come and go. Let the memories about the most spiritual thing you've ever heard, just let them go. Let it all come and go. Stay with this. The ultimate simplicity. The ultimate innocence. Can't miss it. Never missed it. Maybe you've looked past it a little bit. That's the funny thing is you can't even really look past it, but it can feel like that because of the way thoughts inflect experience or inflect attention. <clears throat> um, but the beauty of this is this one-pointed, one-pointedness is there's nothing to filter here. We don't have to actually discern anymore. The mind's business is discerning. This is too obvious to require discernment. Any of these questions, any of these things I'm saying can lead you, if, if the question makes sense to you or is juicy to you, can lead you to it, right? You could ask yourself, what is so obvious that it doesn't require discernment? To know, to experience. What is it that's in my experience that's happening all the time before, during, and after any thought? How can I look from where I'm looking and look at what I'm looking at all at the same time? How is that possible? Ask the question in an open-ended way. Ask the question with trust that there's some kind of answer, potentially. Open yourself to the mystery after asking the question. See what happens. One question, the right question at the right time, can stop everything. can stop your whole process. can stop all illusions. It does happen. You can't force it, but you can experiment. You can ask with open-heartedness in the same way that you can see with the heart from the quote at the beginning of this talk. Um, you can also question with the heart and surrender with the heart. So ask the question and then surrender to the experience. That's one way of talking about the one-pointed one approach. There are koans that can be used in Zen, for instance, but it doesn't really matter what you use. These are just instruments to orient you to that one-pointed one experience. Once you're oriented to it, it takes on a life of its own. You can call it Mu, but it doesn't have a name. Also, often for people, this one-pointed experience opens up when they stop struggling with the last thing they've been struggling with, often without realizing it. Let me say that again, because <laughs> I think I said it right. But Often, the one-pointed experience opens up 
when people stop struggling with the last thing that they've been struggling with without realizing it. So one thing you could ask yourself is, what am I struggling with? What do I believe has to stop for me to wake up or whatever? What do I believe I need to just get rid of? What part of my experience or part of myself or what belief? What do I believe I need to acquire or understand or elucidate for something to happen here? That struggle, that actually is resistance, the belief itself. It represents resistance. So this is why inquiry into thought and belief can be helpful. It can lead you to like, oh man, I've been struggling with, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to give examples because you got to find it yourself if it's happening. It may not be happening, but I find that that often is where um, someone kind of flips into that one-pointed experience when they realize, yes, it's already here. And yes, maybe I've tasted it here and there, but what is it that's stopping me from experiencing it? Oh, it's struggle. <laughs> I'm struggling against something because this, this one-pointed experience I'm talking about isn't part of anything. It's everything. It's everything. So you can't, and you can't divide up everything, but you can sort of detune your attention from it in a sense by struggling because struggle implies duality and implies there's someone or something struggling against someone or something else. How can you be on both sides of that at the same time? Try it. Don't struggle. Or just see clearly enough what it is you're struggling with and recognize it's just a belief lodged in there somewhere that the body mind is somehow reacting to it and just let it stop. And then you'll know what it is to be on both sides of that struggle at the same time, because you always have, you always have been, you've never been on one side of anything. You can't be on one side of anything, not in reality, in the mind. Sure. Of course, everything has sides. You're always on one side of everything. There's always a subject. There's always an object, right? But that's not reality. That's just thought. So can you unbind from thought enough? However, that happens through inquiry, through investigating beliefs to recognize that in reality, there is no one side of anything. One side is every side. There aren't sides. There's no inside and there's no outside. There's no one struggling and there's no object of struggle. There's no one in here and there's no one out there. I promise. Even though it may feel like the most monumental struggle in the world, you struggling against whatever, another person, a, an institution, your past, your trauma, whatever, whatever it is. I know it can feel monumental. I get it. Your problem, even if you don't have a fully defined problem, your big core problem, your core wound, whatever. Like, I understand the magnitude that this stuff can build up to. But just for one moment, see, you can't actually be on one side of anything. You're on both sides of all of it. And then there are no sides. And then there's no you. 
separate from anything. There's no anything separate from anything. And then you see that there's no there's no physical indicator for struggle or, or resistance or suffering. So what I mean by that is any sensation you feel in the body, it doesn't actually mean you're struggling. It doesn't mean they're suffering. It doesn't mean anything, actually, until you add meaning to it. It's merely a sensation. So perhaps there's intensity in the chest or some sensation or contraction or whatever you, you know, whatever, however you would describe it. But when you go right to it, it doesn't actually have any, it's not anchored to like a struggling um, self. It's not anchored to a pattern of resistance. It's not anchored to an identity. It's just a sensation. And it also doesn't exist on one side of anything. It's also on every side. So you're free to fully explore all sensation, all sense fields, but particularly sensation because we tend to get that mapped to our struggles or our belief and division, self and other and so forth. And then there's nothing left to do but explore. But the exploration is always right here. There's no exploration into a future. There's no exploration into a deeper understanding or insight or realization. The exploration's right here. It's not a surrogate for something else. It's just full. And it's empty. It's empty because it's not anchored anywhere. It's empty because it's not, it has no weight. It has no binding anymore. But it's full because it's intimate, non-dualistic. It's non-divided. It leaves nothing out. It avoids nothing. So it has a fullness to it. But you are um, off the hook now. The exploration is one of simplicity innocence there's a sort of enjoyment to it but not an enjoyment with surrogates we're not trying to enjoy this for any reason we're not trying to collect the enjoyment um but you're off the hook you don't have to take notes here you don't have to conclude anything you don't have to check in with anyone you don't have to plan what this is going to do for you in the future. You don't have to plan how much it's going to release you from your past. You're off the hook completely. This is mere exploration 
enjoyment. It's a spontaneous exploration, by the way. You don't have to navigate it. It's totally spontaneous. So you're off the hook from effort. Agency. That's about as simple as it gets.